This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. The aging of the population keeps changing the way we live. This family day, we take stock of the state of the family. And Canada is one of the top choices for immigrants looking for a better life. A new book looks at why many ultimately return to their homelands. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A woman of mixed race has become the third person and the first woman to be cured of HIV. The breakthrough involved a new transplant method that used umbilical cord blood. Cord blood is more widely available than the adult stem cells used to cure the previous two patients, and it does not need to be matched as closely to the recipient. Most donors in registries are of Caucasian origin, so allowing for only a partial match has the potential to cure many more people. A watchdog is reviewing accounts of the charity set up in honor of the late Captain Sir Tom Moore, who grabbed headlines during the pandemic by walking laps in his garden to raise millions for health care in Britain. After he became a national figure, his family set up a separate charity in his name called the Captain Tom Foundation, but it's now under scrutiny because management costs outstripped grants during its first year of operations. Captain Moore died last year. He was 100. A Catholic priest in Phoenix has resigned after an investigation found that he incorrectly performed thousands of baptisms over more than 20 years by changing one word in the ritual. Father Andres Arango's use of the phrase, we baptize, rather than the singular, I baptized, the strict wording mandated by the Vatican, has invalidated nearly every baptism he had ever performed. He says he deeply regrets the error. An indigenous language from South America's extreme south has all but vanished after the death of its last living speaker. Cristina Calderon died this week at the age of 93. She had mastered the Yamana language of the Yagan community and after the death of her sister in 2003 was the last person in the world who could speak it. She worked to save her knowledge by creating a dictionary of the language with translations to Spanish. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This long weekend, we mark Family Day. It comes as the two-year pandemic has changed our demographics and the structure of our families. More people live alone or in couples, and there are fewer households with children. Doug Norris, chief demographer at Environics Analytics, says it all flows from the aging of the population. Canada is a growing country, uh, fastest growing country in the G7. 
And it's also a country that as a whole is getting older. Not only are we all getting older day by day, but the country uh, is is getting older. And that certainly has implications on the, the makeup of families, the way different generations uh, decide to live out their lives. So it sure is a time of change. What percentage of people now are 65 and over, and how much is that expected to grow? It's in and around 18% now, over 65, and it's headed up to probably somewhere around 25% in the next uh, 15 or so years. So it'll be one in four Canadians over the age of 65 uh, before too long. In fact, that's just about the only part of the population that's growing. If you look at the growth in the under 65, it's very low, something like 10% over the next 20 years. An older population presents uh, a real uh, strong and large consumer group. Um, very often, you know, for way too long, in my view, marketers have not really paid much attention to that older population, focusing always on, on the young millennials or those young people, 20-somethings. But the reality is there's a lot of spending power now. As the older population grows, the spending power of that group is really increasing. We're in a situation where a minority of households have children. That's right. I think probably somewhere around, likely less, a little bit less than 40% have children now. About one in four households are a person living on their own. And a similar number probably of uh, empty nest couples, the older children have left home, uh, young people not yet deciding, perhaps not being able to afford having children. Your report says that the growth is likely to be in both multi-generation homes and empty nest homes. One of the things I would think is driving that are these incredibly high real estate prices. So you have adult children moving back and uh, then you have adult children with families kind of pooling resources and with grandparents taking care of kids, right? The other thing that's driving that growth is our immigrant population. A very high percentage of our immigrant population are three generation. The younger family taking care of perhaps their parents who may have, they may have brought into Canada as well. I'm also seeing non-family two-plus persons. Another uh, yeah. trend that we're seeing are yeah. people getting together and co-owning a home, both for financial reasons and for companionship and for support as they age. I don't have any statistics on how much of that is happening, uh, but certainly I think some alternative I think we need to look at to, uh, you know, the nursing homes or the retirement homes, uh, which if you ask people, they really don't want to go into. Uh, they want to live autonomously in some way, but, but perhaps pooling resources is one way of doing that. We've got to get going on that because, uh, you know, we're now an older population. The oldest boomer turned 75 this year, and in 10 years, uh, there's going to be double the number of people over the age of 75, many over 85, 90, and over 100. So we've got to find, I think, alternative living arrangements for the, for that population. As of the writing of this report, you say younger boomers are mostly employed. 
and have older children at home. Do you see that changing? And also, do you see the kind of concept and timing of retirement changing? Beginning back a little before the turn of the century, uh, retirement age started to move up. Many people working beyond 65, some of them because they had to, but many others just wanting to keep engaged, wanting to keep active, and the kinds of jobs they had allowed them to continue to work uh, well into their late 60s, 70s, 80s. And so the question now is, with the pandemic hitting, what's going to happen? Because one of the groups that's been hardest hit and haven't really recovered in terms of their employment levels is seniors. Uh, A lot of seniors... um, came out of the labor force, came out of employment during the pandemic. And I think it's a question of, are they going to go back or are they going to say, no, you know, we're had enough. Uh, and that's one trend that I'll be interested in watching over the, uh, the next few years. Okay, Doug Norris, thanks so much. Okay, thank you, Libby. That was Doug Norris, Chief Demographer at Environics Analytics. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, we know that Canada is a country of immigration, but now we'll talk about the movement in the opposite direction when immigrants go back to their homelands. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca. There's always lots of public discussion about immigration. This week, the government announced it is increasing the target for the year, looking to welcome 432,000 new immigrants. But what about movement in the opposite direction? when immigrants return to their countries of origin. Yemen-born Kamal al-Soleili is the author of Return, Why We Go Back to Where We Come From. I reached him in Vancouver. I'm getting into my late 50s, and I started to think a lot about about home, among other reasons. Um, there, there was just so many changes happening in Canada that just made me feel a little bit uncomfortable being in brown, being Muslim, being gay, and um, and I just started to fantasize about what's it like to go somewhere where that's not an issue anymore, where you're just one of the one of the millions of people and you look just like everybody else. Kamal, you come from Yemen. There's a war there, mm-hmm. and it's not a fabulous place for a gay man, as far as I know. <laughs> and I and I and I don't even remotely um, hide those facts in the book. And I confront them head on, particularly around around the gay issues and I also obviously around the war. But uh, homeland returns are, do, do not necessarily have sort of, they, they are not the reverse journey of, of outward immigration. I think a lot of outward immigration can be rationalized by wanting to a better life for yourself or escaping war-torn countries or poverty. Um, I think homeland returns sort of, uh, returns in general fall under a different category. And, and it's maybe it's nostalgia, maybe it's just, uh, missing the place of your birth, missing family, connecting family. And these things don't, are not always subject to these, you know, just to reason. I mean, there's a lot of emotions at play here. 
it's been a long time since you were in Yemen. You left as a very young man, and you're even saying that you're losing your mother tongue, Arabic. Yes, and and that makes that makes return even you know more challenging. The thing is, uh, I as you, as you can tell in the book, I spoke to a lot of people who returned to what they perceived to be their motherland, even though they may not necessarily speak the language, even though they they've lost their connection to that native tongue. Yes, I had left at a very young at a very young age, but I have returned quite often as an adult to visit family. As the war in Yemen escalated, which is obviously a war that just shows no sign of uh, coming to an end, I started to feel a, a kind of a, a strong survival guilt. I feel every time I am, I hear from my family and I see that the huge discrepancy between my life and theirs. It's probably just as complicated for a lot of people who may choose to go back to China or to or to other parts of the Middle East or Sub-Saharan Africa. It is there's always going to be a geopolitical uh, context that that made you perhaps and made your family leave the, uh, your homeland behind. There is um, a certain kind of agency and strength in the people who choose to return because then in most cases they leave behind what is probably a higher standard of living um, in, in Europe or North America. They, they're usually acting out of a kind of an agency, a, a way to reclaim uh, agency and control over their lives. There is an element of privilege and there's an element of, um, well, a certain financial resourcefulness because you're, you do bring in a lot of money with you. You kind of, you, you, you insulate yourself from the reality of the country you live in. You're living, technically you're living kind of like an expat. You talk about uh, black people who return to Africa, people returning to the Caribbean, to Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Uh, people returning to Taiwan. If you, if you want to look at Taiwan and and say Jamaica as an import of comparison, or even Taiwan and, and and Ghana, is that the majority of the younger, particularly men and women who returned to Taiwan, even though they were either you know born in Taiwan and then went to North America or born in North America, are university educated. Um, mostly in tech and new technology in general, and they were the the generation that uh, that was affected most by the financial crisis of two thousand eight two thousand nine. Very well educated, um, you know, highly skilled uh, labor force, and they have the ability to be nomadic. Um, and or in this case, they chose to go back to their home country. And and for whether you want to talk about Ghana or um, or Jamaica, the majority of the people I spoke to were, I would call, in the middle class um, of uh, you know African or Caribbean diaspora. Um, and they have done well for themselves. They bought a home back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, when people could afford homes, um, they've seen the value of their homes appreciate, and then they sold that home and bought somewhere in a piece of the land, a piece of the rock in Jamaica. I obviously contrast that with, with people who were deported from North America for criminal or visa violations, mostly younger, um, younger men. Um, who uh, uh, for other for criminal records, and they were returned home. They were deported against their wishes, and that's a completely different story. For people who return later in life, mm. 
and it's very nostalgic. Are they sometimes, uh, do they sometimes find that their idea of their homeland is kind of frozen in time and, and they have difficulties adapting or it's not what they expect? You know, absolutely. It really depends on how often you've been back um, since you left in the first place. And and even if you have been back regularly as a tourist or someone just for the summer or spent a couple of months here, a couple of months there, it's not the same as living as a um, as a local, as a as a living and sort of being exposed to the elements and the political reality and in some cases bureaucracy or whatever of the world that you left behind. The homeland that we all fantasize about, that we sort of plot our return to, is really in our heads. It is it is the one that we grew up in. It's the one that sort of captures our either childhood or coming-of-age experiences. It is absolutely frozen in time. Even in a place like Belfast in Northern Ireland, you'll see that a lot of the people who return thinking that sort of peace has also returned to Northern Ireland are now facing the fact that uh, particularly in the in the in, in the wake of Brexit uh, that the that the border issues between the Republic and Northern Ireland mean certain complications and um, that they weren't expecting. Several people I spoke to also said, oh, listen, I made my return. This is a good place to raise my children, but if things don't work out, I've also kept my American or Canadian passport and I'll just go back. Um, and, and this is the other thing about return. It's, they're not one-way journeys. They're, sometimes they're very circular, going back and forth and back and forth. You also talk about a return to the ancestral homeland, be it Israel or Africa, which can be places they have never set foot in. Mm-hmm. That to me is like the most fascinating. In the case of Israel, there, there, there is the the, uh, the idea that you're performing uh, a higher duty, Alaya, um, uh, and, and I always mispronounce that word, but uh, which is like kind of a rising higher, and by returning to the promised land. Um, and in some cases, it's also underwritten by their experience of anti-Semitism in the West. And similarly, for a lot of people who have re- chosen to return to, and I can use the word return in the sense of the mark, we're using to make a journey home to Africa. It's mostly, uh, it's obviously uh, all Africa, uh, people of African descent who just had it, have had it being black in North America. And the return to Africa seems to be one way of redressing a huge historical injustice that is the transatlantic um, uh, slavery. Kamal, are you going to return to Aden in Yemen? I would love to, as soon as there is peace, as soon as it's safe enough to do so, my plan is to uh, live in the in our family, little family house on the hill, but also to buy a little apartment. I may not necessarily live there year-round, but when I retire, I certainly want to avoid Canadian winters. And when the time comes and I'm too old to keep going back and forth, it's just to settle in Aden for good and, and be buried there. Okay. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you. It was such a great conversation. Thank you so much. That was Kamal Soleili, author of Return, Why We Go Back to Where We Come From. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi. 
Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.